All right. Uh, the last two Wednesdays, we have been working on a, it's called, we're calling it Grasping the Word, and it's been kind of a two-part hermeneutical series. Uh, we need to finish that, but my, always my frustration with teaching hermeneutics or Bible study methods is Bible study methods and hermeneutics are only as good as people, uh, only are worth anything if people take it and do something with it. So I thought tonight, in the middle of that, we'll just do some hermeneutics ourselves, working on something in the Gospel of Matthew. So take a Bible, open up the Gospel of Matthew. Also, if you have a Bible dictionary anywhere near that, we'll grab that. And um, we'll use a number of uh, different tools and different things, and it'll be more like a devotional, <clears throat> more of a devotional message, along with some... Um, impromptu hermeneutics as well, and we'll see what we find. This comes from, um, um, what started all this is uh, the, I can't remember the name of this book, let me go to it. The name of this book is, go to my library here. This, the name of this book, I believe, is the, the Jesus Code, which we talked uh, in depth about, all right? Let me find it here. It's been, yeah, it's been a while. <clears throat> we talked about it. We examined it. Um, just because there's so, there was you know, so much discussion going on. The Joshua Code is what it's called, actually. Yeah, the Joshua Code. And um, there's, there, they, he also has one called the Jesus Code. I have both of them on the, the Kindle, so I couldn't remember which one was which. Uh, but this is from the Joshua Code, which is the first book. Remember, it's a series of books sold, I don't know, they, there was some award given for over a million copies sold or whatever. And we uh, read a news article about being used in small groups and in churches. So we, we examined it. Basically, it's a daily, it's a weekly devotional because they give you one verse that you're supposed to study for an entire week. So um, nothing horribly wrong with the concept. We talked about them. You know, I would recommend the books, but with all books like this, uh, devotional books, um, they're only valuable not by reading them, but by using them as the starting point to actually do study, because if you don't do your own study, you're wasting your own time, and you waste, wasted your money in buying the books. So um, I, I looked at this today, which kind of sparked a, a study, and then I kind of stopped and said, well, we'll just do it together here tonight. Hopefully it'll be beneficial for everyone. The text that they want us to focus on, or in the, in the case of this book, the text they wanted people to focus on for an entire week is Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 6. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And there we read these words, very familiar words. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Now there's a lot we could start with right here, but before we do that, we'll, we will allow the devotional to guide us, and then we'll divert off when we need to. The title for this uh, devotional is Being Comes Before Doing. Being Comes Before Doing. All right. That's what caught my attention is the title itself, because there's a lot of important concepts there that being comes before doing. All right. I I'm on board with this. Where are they going to go? I found it interesting. They quoted Matthew chapter five, verse six with that title. So I was like, OK, what direction are they going? Let's see where they go and see if you catch a problem here. All right. The Lord began his famous Sermon on the Mount with a series of verses that have come to be known as the Beatitudes. Our verse this week is planted squarely in the middle of this section. All the Beatitudes coming before it point to it, and all the ones following it issue out of it. All right, so let's stop right there. First thing they want us to understand is that they believe uh, Matthew 5, 6, the one we just read, that this is a critical verse in this section, and let me read it to, uh, to us again. Our verse for this week is planted squarely in the middle of this section. All the Beatitudes coming before Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 point to it, and all of the ones following it issue out of it. All right, there's a lot there we can figure out. We'll see if we, if we get there and if we agree or disagree. 
Now listen carefully. It is important to understand that what our Lord is driving home here, all right? They, they want us to make sure that we understand. It's very important to understand what he is driving home here. These are the Beatitudes and not the do attitudes. Being comes before doing. For what we do is always determined by who we are. Now, as soon as I read that, I threw my Kindle across the room. Okay. I, I didn't because it's still here, but I wanted to. All right. I don't know if anyone caught the problem here. Let's read it again. It is important to understand what our Lord is driving home here. These are the Beatitudes and not the do attitudes. Being comes before doing, for what we do is always determined by who we are. Now, what is the problem with that? Okay, there's a deeper problem. What's the problem with what they just said? Please tell me y'all would all catch it. No, okay, let me read it again. All right. It is important to understand what our Lord is driving home here. These are the be attitudes and not the do attitudes. Being comes before doing, for what we do is always determined by who we are. There we go! His whole argument here is these are called the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. Well, wait a minute. Everyone's got a Bible? Right. The Beatitudes are not part of the text. So he's making an interpretive argument based off these are called Beatitudes. Everyone should have, like immediately you read that, you should go, wait a minute. And you should know a little church history. Everybody know where the Beatitudes came from, the phrase? The Latin Vulgate. Latin Vulgate, it was used, started to show, and different editions of the Latin Vulgate kind of showed up as kind of a heading, right? So that means it did not exist in the original, did not exist until the Latin Vulgate was translated, and even there it only showed up in some translate or some editions of the Latin Vulgate. It ultimately came over, and I have the date here to make sure I was 100% right, in what is called the Great Bible of 50. 1540. Okay. Well, uh, the, the Vulgate is way before the 1500s. But, so it was in the Vulgate and some editions of it, and then it really kind of becomes the norm, I guess you could say, in the 1540, in 1540 with the Great Bible. All right, that tells us what? The Bible, does Jesus refer to these as the Beatitudes? Does the Bible refer to them as Beatitudes? No. Okay. So wait a minute. His whole little clever thing is there's the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. Therefore, being comes before doing. Now, here is a, this is a major, and I've I talked about this in some recordings this week. This is a, a major issue that some Christians have in listening to sermons and reading Christian books. Even if a point may be true, that's not the main issue. The main issue is how did you derive at the so-called true point? If you mishandled the scriptures, even if your point is accurate, it's irrelevant because you mishandled the scriptures to arrive at said true point. The handling of the scripture is more important than the point being right. If you want to make the right point, derive the right point from the right handling of Scripture. But a lot of people go, oh, the point was good. The point was good in that sermon, but the, the Scriptures were mishandled. That should bother you, unless you don't believe the Scriptures are the authority and you believe, oh, because he's your favorite pastor, so it doesn't matter. That's not the way it works. So immediately I'm like, well, wait. Whether his argument is true that being comes comes before doing for what we do is always determined by who we are, okay? And even right there, you got to be somewhat careful because what are we, all, what are we? So, so you know, even that, you kind of got to like how to work it. There's a general principle here that I agree with, right? 
But the problem is, he based it off the fact that these are called the Beatitudes. Boom! They're the Beatitudes, not the do attitudes. So how do I interpret them? That these are all things talking about being, not about doing. Now, that may, be, that may be an accurate way to interpret it, but you don't take it from the title Beatitudes. You take five seconds to look up where did the, the name come from. I, I got the whole history here in my notes if I needed it. Latin Vulgate is where it shows up. It shows us a heading and some of the additions of the Latin Vulgate. Ultimately, it moves over. And then it shows up in the 1540, the Great Bible. And then from that point, it's now in pretty much every Bible that everyone owns. It has one of those headings. But those headings are not a part of the original. Now, I don't care if you want to call them the Beatitudes. Just please note, who did not call them the Beatitudes? God. Jesus. Was the, did the term Beatitudes come from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? No. It came from a man. Some man, okay? If we go to the Latin Vulgate, Jerome, okay? So, you know, and, and many people would reject the Latin Vulgate, okay? Many Protestants reject the Latin Vulgate, okay? But we use the, it's, it's, I don't even want to get into what Christians know or don't know because they, it's just, it's embarrassing. But, so what we're going to do is we're going to do a little work here, all right? We're going to see what we can. So let's just start with a basic thing. Grab a dictionary, look up the word Beatitudes and see what we find. Is there an entry for Beatitudes in the Bible Dictionary? And let's see what it says. But you see how subtle that was slipped into that book? I bet you many of you would have missed it. I, now, personally, I don't know how people could have missed it, but as soon as I saw it, I was like, wait a minute, he's building an argument off, off <clears throat> not something in the Bible. There is an entry. What page? 167, let's see what we learn in the Bible Dictionary. The Beatitudes. The eight declarations of blessedness made by Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Each beginning with blessed are. Some scholars speak of seven, nine, or ten Beatitudes. <laughs> Don't you love that? We can't even agree on how many? <laughs> oh, do you not know how that stuff drives me crazy? All right. yeah, just like people can't agree on how to number the Ten Commandments either, right? But that's a whole different story. All right. Nine or ten Beatitudes, but the number appears to be eight. Um, uh, verses 10 through 12 of Matthew 5 being one Beatitude. The Greek word translated blessed means having spiritual well-being and prosperity, the deep joy of the soul. The blessed have a, have a share in salvation and have entered the kingdom of God, experiencing a foretaste of heaven. Some scholars render each beatitude as an exclamation, um, in other words, like the, the bliss of blessedness, the Beatitudes describe the ideal disciple and his rewards, both present and future. The person whom Jesus describes in this passage has a different quality of character and lifestyle than those still outside the kingdom. As a literary form, the Beatitude is also found often in the Old Testament, um, especially in the Psalms, and often in the New Testament, and in, well, that's it. That don't tell us the, uh, uh, the origin of the word Beatitudes, right? They don't tell us that it wasn't originally listed there in the Bible. Now they take the word Beatitudes comes from the idea that he begins this section, if you go to Matthew 5, by saying what? Blessed, blessed, blessed. If the word Beatitudes is describing blessing, blessed is the man, then the emphasis of the term Beatitude is not on, on, it's on, uh, it's on the idea of being blessed. It's, it's more describing the idea of being blessed versus not being blessed than describing being versus doing. Agreed? Now, I'm not saying that being wouldn't be involved, but I'm just saying that you've got to be careful when you have a book that comes up with this little, clever little line that there are the be attitudes, not the do attitudes. This is about being, not doing. Well, we have to be there. Because uh, if we want to talk of this idea of being blessed, if we go to Psalm chapter 1, Right? Does that talk about being blessed? Does that not also talk about doing and not doing? 
Correct? It seems to say the way I get the, the, the quote-unquote being of being blessed comes from what I do. Correct? Or does being blessed lead to what? I, like now we could get into, that leads into a whole hermeneutical argument right there. Okay. So um, I'm just saying that right, right there it, you, you have to stop and see. But let's see what they do with it and we'll, we'll get an idea. But I just, you got to learn to catch little things like that. That's just, that's, learn, that's just basic reading knowledge. That's not even hermeneutics. That's just reading technique. You got to know how to catch that stuff. All right. So let's see where they go with this. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Our verse this week is planted squarely in the middle of this section. All the Beatitudes coming before it point to it. All the ones following it issue out of it. We still have to determine if that is true, but we'll get to that. It is important to understand what our Lord is driving home here. These are the Beatitudes and not the do-attitudes. Being comes uh, before doing, for what we do is always determined by who we are. Now, let me state again. Not necessarily negating his point. I'm arguing that the point can't be derived from the fact that these are called Beatitudes because he's deriving the point from a title that showed up way after the Bible, did not show up in the original. Does everybody understand that? Okay. Now, the Beatitudes are not a set of rules such as the Ten Commandments by which we are to live. The Ten Commandments have to do with actions. The Beatitudes have to do with attitudes. All right, let's stop right there. There's a little bit of interpretation going on here, right? They're giving you a blueprint on how you are to interpret the Beatitudes. And according to them, how are you to interpret these uh, uh, Beatitudes that they refer to them as? That these are not commandments. Right, that's their exact words. They're not commandments. All right. The Ten Commandments have to do with action. The Beatitudes have to do with attitudes. That's their, their argument. All right. We'll have to see if, if that holds true. All right. Now, um, I, will, I will stop right here because when, I started, when, when they said something about the Ten Commandments, I was like, well, wait a minute. Some people attach the Beatitudes to Moses. Right, so I had to look and look, and I found uh, one of my study Bibles. And if I can read these notes, because they're very small, um, I'll, I'll show you what they do here, because I think it's kind of interesting. And we'll we'll see if if, if we agree with this or disagree with this. But this, again, this is just doing basic work, trying to figure this out. Make sure again, make sure we understand. They are claiming beatitudes are not what, not commandments. The Ten Commandments focus on what. Actions, Beatitudes focus on what? That's what they're claiming. That's what they're claiming. When you read a book like that, you have to stop. What we do is just proceed on, and then what becomes now the filter by which we read the Beatitudes? So when you read that, they just handed you a pair of glasses going, this is how you should read the Beatitudes. You have to learn to catch that. All right? the, and Matthew 5, does it give you a key to interpretation? doesn't. So what does that come from? That comes from someone else telling you how to interpret it. That's why I hate, I, I, that's why I, I hate when people rely on, on other tools to study the Bible and don't use the Bible study methods that I've taught everyone how to study the Bible. Because you've got to do your own study because that right there can completely manipulate you in seeing it the right way. But let's see what this study Bible has to say and then uh, see if this is beneficial. This is their note on Matthew 5, 1. Jesus deemed the mountain to be a good setting for teaching a large group. As the new Moses, Jesus' delivery of God's message from a mountaintop provides yet another parallel with the ancient Moses. So they're referring to Jesus as the new Moses or a type of Moses. Now let's stop right there. Has anybody got a biblical or a verse to draw a parallel that Jesus is the new Moses or Jesus is like unto Moses? That would probably be a good choice. Well, what do you do to find it? Okay. I don't look, y'all find it. Find, find me something. Find me something. 
He said it's probably in Hebrews. I don't know if it is in Hebrews. I'm not saying. But, I mean, you pick up a study Bible, and they immediately, right here, they're getting ready to go into, quote-unquote, the Beatitudes, and they start off by saying, let me read it again, Jesus deemed the mountain to be a good setting for teaching a large group as the new Moses. His delivery of God's message from a mountaintop provides yet another parallel with the ancient Moses. Guess what they don't have here? They don't have any reference. They just, boom, Jesus is the new Moses. Okay, well, is that true or not true? What would you what would, what would you turn to? Okay, that, that's that's helpful. See, knowledge of the Bible makes Bible study go much quicker. <laughs> And Sarah's not here to help anybody. So you're on your own. Okay. If you can't find anything, we'll have to move on. I'm going to get 10,000 emails tonight going, how come people didn't know that? I'm like, I don't know. Nothing. I think he is a good choice. How many believe that the New Testament calls Jesus the new Moses? Okay. I think that could be a, a fair assessment. So there... I think we can argue this, that people like to see a parallel between Moses and Jesus, correct? Right? Moses is tasked to go and deliver his people, right? To save God's people from bondage. And Jesus came to deliver us from bondage. I would agree that there's a parallel, but you just got to be careful to just randomly in the middle of a study Bible say, Jesus is the new Moses. I believe there's a parallel, and I believe that we may find some correlation that Moses did this, Jesus this. There may be some parallels, but you would have to look for it. Mm -hmm. Was what? Better than Moses, okay. Okay, there is contrast of Moses and Jesus to demonstrate Jesus' superiority Overmost. And you could contrast what Moses did versus what Jesus did. So there is some level. To now just label Jesus the new Moses, it seems that he didn't come as a new Moses. He came as someone better than Moses. Okay. So, you know, I'm not going to make the bigger deal, biggest deal out of it. What I just want you to see is when you pick up a study Bible, you got to stop. And again, you got to pay attention to what you were reading. All right. So that all right, we did, we did enough there. We could do a little bit more work to, to, to draw the parallels, but that's okay. Right. Yeah, right. And I'm just saying, when you just, in the middle of a study Bible, when you ever read something as the new Moses, okay, I, 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 you should immediately stop and go, well, wait a minute, where's a cross-reference? Give me something. Give me something, right? If you're going to call him the new Moses, give me something, okay? And, and there may be a way to, to, to pan that language out somehow. I'm just saying that, you know, we have to look at this. Now, let's see what they do with this. Um, his delivery, speaking of Jesus, uh, of God's message from a mountaintop, provides yet another parallel with the ancient Moses. Obviously, Moses went to a mountaintop to get the Ten Commandments. Jesus is in a mountain to deliver the, what they refer to as the, Beatitudes, so they're going to draw a parallel here. Uh, they do say this, the Greek word translated, he went up into a mountain, are you, the Greek words translated, he went up into a mountain, are used three times in the Greek Old Testament. What's the Greek Old Testament? The Septuagint, all right. And they named the places, um, Exodus 19.3, 24.18, and 34.4, all right. Well, that's, that's great, I mean, 
They used the same word. I, I mean, you know, well, look, uh, they used to, uh, they used to say, I, I don't know if, we're, if we can make a lot out of that, but they do because there's a parallel. Okay, yeah, they both went up into a mountain. Okay, I, I, I do agree they both went up to a mountain. Moses receives the message of God, right, the Ten Commandments. Jesus goes up in a mountain to deliver the message of God. Okay, all right. There is a parallel there. Um, and all three, this is what they say, all three times this same Greek uh, word is used, fall in the section describing Moses' ascent of Mount Sinai. Well, of course it would have to be describing his ascent to Mount Sinai because the phrase is, he went up into a mountain. <laughs> Woo! Again, sometimes people can go, look, look, it uses the same words. They have to prove something. Okay, it, it proves they both went up into a mountain. A lot of people in the Bible went up into a mountain. Agreed? Okay, all right. So, again, you just got to be careful with this. But let's see what else they go. Since Matthew introduces the Sermon on the Mount by highlighting the connection between Jesus and Moses, let's stop right there. I don't know if he really highlighted the connection between Jesus and Moses. He just said that, and seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain. Does he say that there's a connection? Again, this is the kind of stuff you have to. This is the kind of stuff you have to look for. But this is the kind of stuff pastors love to find because they can say it in a sermon, and everyone thinks the pastor's so smart. He probably just took it from page whatever from his study Bible. Okay, that's probably where he got it from. Okay, all right. Since uh, Matthew introduced the Sermon on the Mount by highlighting the the connection between Jesus and Moses, uh, the Beatitudes should probably be read. Now listen to this. The Beatitudes should probably be read against the backdrop of Moses' teachings. Stop right there. Okay, now, the Bible study guide wants us to read them in connection to the uh, teachings of Moses, but in what way? No, that's the study Bible. What did the, the, uh, the, the little devotional book I was reading from, what did they want us to do with the Beatitudes? And Remember? The Beatitudes are not a set of rules, such as the Ten Commandments, by which we are to live. The Ten Commandments have to do with actions. The Beatitudes have to do with attitudes. They want us to read them as a contrast. Here were the Beatitudes, or here was the Ten Commandments. Action. Now read these. As a contrast to that, because these are about attitudes. This wants us to read them in what way? They should be read against the backdrop of Moses' teachings. All right, now, okay, now, wait a minute. Now, this, this is interesting, because everyone's telling you what, what? How to read them. Everyone's telling you how to interpret them. That's why I always say you don't go to material until you've done your own study because the material will ultimately influence what you see. All right? I, I, I've stressed this so many times. Let's see what they go here. All right? The only time the adjective blessed was used by Moses was in his blessing on Israel, Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 29. All right? Now what's interesting... He says the only time the adjective blessed was used by Moses, but they have the Greek term, so I don't know if they're referring to the only time Moses used the, 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 the adjective in the Septuagint. I, I don't know what they, they mean there. They don't explain. Uh, we, let's look at Deuteronomy 33, 29 really quick. Deuteronomy 33, 29. Yeah, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Happy art thou, they would argue that that's the, the idea of blessed, okay? Happy art thou, and I, there's a good chance in the Septuagint it's translated blessed. I, I, I mean, I don't know, I don't have the Septuagint in front of me, and they don't give me the actual quote from the Septuagint, but I'm going to go with that argument. Okay, blessed art thou, or happy art thou, O Israel, who is like unto thee, O people, saved by the Lord, the shield of thy help, and who is the sword of thy excellence, and thine enemies shall be found liars uh, upon thee, and thou shalt tread upon their high places. Okay? He used the term blessed 
All right, well, let's see. Remember, they want, this, they want the, the teachings of Moses to be the backdrop for the Beatitudes. Let's see where they go with this, all right? The only time the adjective blessed was used by Moses was in his blessing on Israel, Deuteronomy 33, 29. Israel's blessing had both a historical and future focus. Historically, they were saved by being delivered out of Egypt. The remainder of the blessing assured the Israelites of future success in their conquest of the promised land. Against this backdrop, the blessings of the new Moses identify Jesus' disciples as the new Israel. Whoa, 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 slow down. Does anybody see in Matthew 5 where they say this is the new Israel? Right? You just see, study, study Bibles, this is the kind of stuff with, with study material, right? I mean, that's just making a major assumption, right? Hey, this is the new Israel, replacing the old Israel. All right, this, is, this has got eschatology written all of this. This is making all kinds of assumptions, right? Let's, let's continue to read here. Again, against this backdrop, the blessings of the new Moses identify Jesus' disciples as the new Israel who will enjoy a new exodus and conquest. The new Moses is a spiritual deliverer rather than a political one, and his promises must be understood in that light. Jesus pronounces spiritual salvation, uh, an exodus from slavery to sin, and promises spiritual victory, conquest, and inheritance of a new promised land. This backdrop is confirmed by the allusion to Israel's exodus and conquest in the, prom in the promise that the meek will inherit the earth. Right, now, now, there's another major claim here. Okay, let's read that again. Remember, they're saying this backdrop. That's the way we have to read it. And they say this backdrop is confirmed, the way you know, by the allusion to Israel. Now, they say there's an allusion to Israel where? By the phrase, the meek will inherit the earth. No, stop right there. They say that that's an allusion to Israel. Is it? Oh, well, I don't know. It, it may be absolutely right. Who has a cross-reference? What, what, uh, what verse is that? Matthew chapter 5, verse what? 5-5, five, five, right? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. How many have a cross-reference? Nobody has a cross-reference? Psalm 37.11. All right, let's go there. Psalm 37.11. Now see, if my viewpoint, if you take study material and you do what we're doing, the study material becomes invalid, or becomes um, invaluable. You can't even put a price tag on it because now it's leading you to actually studying the text. But if you just read it and don't take the time to do this, then study material becomes not only, in my opinion, worthless, it becomes downright dangerous because it's leading you to certain ways of looking at it. What, what's the cross-reference? 37.11. All right. Now, okay, we got a Psalm of David. Okay, um, we're going to have to just read this to see how Israel gets involved here, right? Because remember what they said? Let me read it again. Their exact words. Let me find it. This backdrop is confirmed by the allusion to Israel's exodus and conquest and the promise that the meek will inherit the earth. All right, so our cross-reference is what? Psalm 37, 11. All right. Let's start in verse 1 and see where, where this leads. Fret not thyself because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity, for they shall sh soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green her herb. Trust in the Lord and do good, so shalt thou dwell in the land, verily thou shalt be, be fed. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass." 
And he shall bring forth thy righteousness as the light and thy judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not thyself because of him who prospereth in his way, because of the man who uh, bringeth wicked devices to pass. Cease from anger, forsake wrath, fret not thyself in any wise to do evil. Now let's stop right there. This is a Psalm of David, number one. It's written way after the Exodus. Agreed. Okay. All right. Number two, is he making a reference back to Israel coming out of Egypt here? Nothing that I see. Verse 9, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall not be. They shall be diligently, con uh, but thou shalt dil diligently consider his place, and it shall not be. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Right, but that's not a reference to Israel coming out of, yeah, yeah I mean, yeah, I mean, Israel was constantly dealing with land, right? Constantly dealing with land issues, right? So, let's read this again. This backdrop, remember the backdrop, I've got to read this in light of Moses' teaching. This backdrop, they say, is confirmed by the allusion to Israel's exodus and conquest and the promise that the meek will inherit the earth, right? Now, any other cross-reference to Matthew 5.5? 5, 5? Romans 4.13. Go to Romans 4.13. This is taking a lot longer than I thought it would, but that's okay. When you have to check every source that's written in a Christian book ten times, you know, that's... Romans 4.13. You said 4.13? All right, for the promise that he should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed uh, through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. All right, I, uh, I guess I kind of see where they're going there. There's a promise, but I guess they're assuming that there's meek there. But, but that's all the way back to Abraham. It's not an allusion to Israel coming out of the Exodus. I, I don't get that. All right, anybody got anything else? Is that it? Saw the cross-references? All right, let me uh, pull up something. Psalm 22 what? Okay, right. y'all pull, pull up that uh, Psalm 22. All right, that's not much of a help. Okay, let me, let me pull up uh, cross-references. Deuteronomy 33-something? Why? Oh, well, I mean, I have to look for it. Hang on, give me a second. Let me go back. 33-29. Uh, or, yeah, 33-29. Yeah, how come? Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, now... Uh, I've got some more cross-references, but I'm not going to, none of, the, I mean, these are going to lead us to Isaiah, Zephaniah, Galatians, James, 1 Peter. They're not going to lead us back to Israel coming out of the Exodus, I don't think. So I, I would already be like, wait a minute. So they said this confirms it. I, I don't get a confirmation. This is what we will say. Does Moses go up into a mountain? Yes. Does he receive a message from God? Yes. Does he come down the mountain and teach that? Yes. Okay. Does Jesus go up into a mountain? Yes. Is there a similarity there? Yeah, we could say there's a similarity there. Okay. Uh, Moses gives ten commandments. Jesus gives beatitudes. He does, are there ten beatitudes? Some eight, some nine, and what the other number was what? Ten, I, yeah, I can't remember what the other... Oh, hang on. I got it right here. Wait, do I have it right here? Um, yeah, blessed is said nine times. So the bottom line is, it's, it would be better if there was an exact ten, then the parallel could even be stronger. But they're trying to say that that's the way you have to read it, because wait, he went up into a mountain, he went up into a mountain. You see how that, that kind of dangerous stuff there? Like if, if in Matthew 5, 
Matthew, or the, the, the author of Matthew, if they would have cited something from Exodus and cited Moses, then you would have a case to draw a parallel. When you start drawing these parallels, that's where you get yourself in trouble. Christians love it in a, in a sermon. Oh, let's look at all these parallels. And I'll be like, oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. When I, um, in one of the first Bible schools I went to, we, uh, our textbook was Explore the Book by uh, J. Sidlow Baxter, I think is his name. And he does that constantly. Look at, look at these parallels. Look at these parallels. And everyone in the Bible Institute, like, oh, this is awesome. This is so awesome. Yeah, it sounds awesome, but you've got to make sure the parallel is the parallel. The only parallel I have right now is what? Jesus went up into a mountain. Moses went up into a mountain. They both had a message. Are, are they, is there a contrast between the commandments and the Beatitudes? Maybe there is. Maybe there isn't. Let's see what they do here, all right? So let, okay, Moses was meek. There we go. Maybe, maybe there's the correlation. I don't, I, I don't know. All right. All right, let's go back to the uh, devotional itself and see how far we can get here, all right? But you see, uh, just, just doing a little bit of work, just reading the devotional immediately made us go, wait a minute, something's wrong here. Immediately they drew a connection between the Beatitudes and the Ten Commandments, which made me think of the study Bible, because I knew there was a note who did the same thing. But immediately the study Bible and what the uh, devotional doing, not even necessarily, they're kind of going at it from a different way. One's the backdrop, the other one is a contrast. Right? You see just how... Like, this is the stuff that drives me crazy. This is why there is no agreement in Christianity on anything. And whenever I say that, people are like, no Christians agree on all kinds of stuff. Whatever. No, they don't. Okay, that's why we don't talk, the, that's why we don't talk Scripture with each other, because there's never any agreement on it. All right, let's, let's see what they do here. The Beatitudes are not a set of rules. Let's stop right there. Okay, everyone got Matthew 5 open? Skim verse 3 to 12. Do you agree or disagree? Let me read it again. All right. Everybody's got to pay attention. All right. The Beatitudes are not a set of rules. Does a rule have to say thou shalt? Let me ask you a question. You want to be blessed? Does that tell you how? Wouldn't that be a rule? Well, it'd be a rule, right? Can you become blessed apart from this? Okay, would this at least be required? I mean, this is Jesus talking, everyone. I don't know why there would be disagreement here. Jesus is talking. If I don't, do, if, if I don't follow what he says here, can I be blessed? Now you say, well, maybe I can be. Well, if you say you can be, then that means I don't need, the G I don't need Jesus teaching on how to be blessed. I would have to say that this would be at least part of it, right? Now, what I would say, I would have to go to the rest of the Bible and other teachings of being blessed, but I would say that it would, whatever teaching I have about how to be blessed, would it not require these? And if you say it doesn't require these, then I'm just going to go home now, and then you can teach because there's, I don't under, like, I'm, I can, I'm confused. Let me read it again. And seeing the multitude, he went up into a mountain, and when he said, and when he, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are thee. What's the first one? Poor in spirit. If I want to be blessed, what's the requirement? Is that not a rule? Right. Oh, it's not. It's not. It's a commandment in this sense. It's a commandment. If you want to be blessed, this is the way you have to do it. Does that make sense? Right. It's a commandment in that sense. Hey, like, how, how, how do I do this? Well, here are the rules. Here's the commandment. Like, it's, not, it's not negotiable. Jesus is like, well, if you would like to be blessed, here's a, here's a couple of options, all right? Here's a couple of options. I'll just throw them out. Now, so now, immediately, they just make a dogmatic statement. They're not rules. 
And my, my, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, okay, they're not rules, so I can get blessed any way I want. And the answer would be, okay, let me say it again. I can get blessed any way I want. I have to be blessed according to the way the Bible prescribes the what? The rules for blessing, right? Okay. Right? Correct? How do you, how, let, we can just start. Uh, if you want to be blessed, let's just start. We start Old Testament. What's immediately you would go to? Like if someone says, hey, Miss Gussler, I, I, I want to be blessed. What, what would be the first thing that would come to your mind? First thing that comes to my mind is Psalm 1, which says, blessed is the man. No, uh, uh, Psalm chapter 1. Okay, not Matthew. Uh, Psalm chapter 1. Bless, everybody turn there if y'all if forgot what it says. Okay, y'all forgotten it. Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man. And then what does it give you? That's something you have to do, right? Don't walk in the counsel of the godly. Number two, don't stand way of sinners. Number three, don't, don't sit in the seat of the scornful. Right, so there's things you're not to do. What are the things you're supposed to do? Delight and the law of the Lord and do what? Meditate on it day and night. If you want the blessing, there's things you cannot do and there's things you must do. You can try all day say, it's not a rule, that's not a rule, that's not a rule, that's not a rule. It's a rule if I want the blessing. Right? Hey, you can go to your kids. You can have this if you do the following list or if you don't do the following list. It's a rule for anyone who wants what you just promised. Now, if you don't want what's promised, then it's not a rule in that sense, right? But like, oh, I want the blessing. So is there, or do we have agreement there? Because it sounded like we had some disagreement. Do we have agreement or no? No? Okay, I mean, it, it, does everybody understand? I mean, if you, if you disagree, I want to know how, how you're getting around that, that that's not a rule. It's a requirement for a blessing. And if you're saying it's not a requirement for a blessing, then man, I, I, man then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start getting rid of the rest of the, t the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? I'm just going to get rid of the rest. There are a lot of things in the Sermon on the Mount I don't like. That's just a suggestion too, right? No, he's saying if I want to be blessed, what do I have to do? Number one, Right there in Matthew 5, 1. Poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Now stop right there. Merciful in attitude is useless if it doesn't show up in action. <laughs> right? Remember, they're all like, this is about being, not about doing. Well, wait a minute. Okay, I'm merciful. I'm a merciful person. Whew, I am so merciful. Okay? I don't show it. I don't do acts of mercy. I don't do anything to demonstrate merciful, but I'm merciful. No, you have, you have to do it, right? Meekness has to be seen in what? There's got to be something external. Hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, I, you may argue the being precedes the doing. That's okay. But he's trying to, get, they're really emphasizing, hey, this is not like the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, they, uh, in fact, let me read how they say it. The Beatitudes are not a set of rules, such as the Ten Commandments by which we are to live. We're, we're to live according to the Ten Commandments. I guess we're not to live according to the Beatitudes? <laughs> are we not? The Ten Commandments have to do with actions. The Beatitudes have to do with attitudes. Wait, is that all? It, where, do you read that there? Do, do you read that in the text? Now, are attitudes involved here? Obviously, merciful has to be an attitude, but it has to it, it show up where? An action. Meekness is an attitude, but it has to show up in 
poor in spirit. There, there's an attitude there, obviously, of some sort. Does everybody, like, I'm already, I'm already a little concerned with the direction they're going here, all right? The Ten Commandments have to do with conduct. The Beatitudes have to do with character. Why is this so important? Or why is it so important that we believers incarnate these Beatitudes into our very being? It is because our actions flow from our attitudes and our conduct issues, uh, issues out of our character. Now, I agree that our being, right, we, that, that, when, that uh, when Jesus speaks of anything, that it always, I mean, even the Ten Commandments, because he's going to take the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount and go beyond just the physical action to the internal thought process. So I got no problem arguing that Jesus emphasizes being because being is where actions flow from. I'm not denying that. What I'm trying to say is these Beatitudes, whatever, to try to say they're not a rule, negates the fact that it's telling me if I, you know, the only way to get blessed is to do these things or to be these things. That makes it a rule. And number two, it does deal with action because the, uh, the attitude has to show up in action or it would be evidence that the attitude doesn't exist. Um, I don't know. I don't know how I would reference them. This is what I would reference them. This is Jesus teaching on how to be blessed. All right. And if I want to be blessed, I have to follow this. Therefore, by logical in inference, it's a rule. Okay. Now that that's that's something. Now that's a good question. We we I don't want to divert right now, but we definitely should look at that. We definitely should look at that. So, so uh, again, I don't like the way this is going. All right. Um, they go, let's take a journey down this pathway towards the spirit-controlled life. I'll stop right there. Even right there, I'm, I'm, we're, Christian books just throw out language. Where did the spirit-controlled life come into play here? Does, does, anything, does anything in Matthew 5 say spirit-controlled? I understand where they're going here, but they, they don't give me a reference. So now, may how they just throw in connections here? If this is a sign of the spirit-controlled life, then that means if I don't follow this, <laughs> I demonstrate I'm not being controlled by the... So this becomes a test! <laughs> this becomes a test. Not only does it become a rule, it becomes a test. Like, like, no matter how hard they went to try to say, this is not a commandment, this is not... Now you just made it a test. Okay. We talked about this before. All right, so let's, let's see what they have to say. The pathway towards a life of blessing. The pathway begins with the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now stop right there. Now this is a pretty serious one, wouldn't you agree? If you don't have the kingdom of heaven, what would that imply? You're not saved. Wow. Wow. Now, I would say this is a pretty serious rule, right? Okay, right? Hey, if you're not poor in spirit, then you don't get the kingdom of heaven. If I don't get the kingdom of heaven, there's, there's only one other kingdom I'm going to belong to, and that's not a necessarily a good one, right? He's like, no, no matter how much you want to downplay the language, you can't downplay what's being said. Like, I, sometimes I just, I'm blown away again about how people read things, right? They're like, no, when I read this, I mean, it took me five seconds as a new believer, because remember, I read the whole New Testament the first night I got saved, so I read Matthew, okay? And I think immediately I was like, oh. No, I immediately I was like, okay, wait a minute. I don't know, I, don't, I didn't quite understand what the blessed was. I didn't quite understand what that was, but it sounded good. And I was like, well, if I want this, I got to do this. And immediately I was like, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? I got to be poor in spirit if I want to be blessed. And oh, by the way, also, not just to be blessed, kingdom of heaven. Now, I didn't understand what that meant, but it sounded like it was a good thing. Heaven, I knew the word heaven meant a good place. Okay, I knew the other word made a bad place, right? So immediately I'm like, wait a minute here. If I want to be blessed and I want the kingdom of heaven, I've got to be poor in spirit. 
how does this occur? All right, what does that mean? Now, they argue there is no premium to be found in poverty here. Now, let me stop right there. I want you to make sure you understand not everyone agrees in church history. Uh, let me read this again. They said there is no premium to be found in poverty here. In other words, they're saying that this is not being, this is not saying you need to be poor financially. But many in the early church understood this to be, well, well obviously it's a command. Do you want to be blessed? Right? That you have to be poor. So they, or many in the early church sold their earthly possessions, joined little, what we would call a commune or a group. They took that from Acts had everything in common, grew their own food, self-sustained, didn't own any material wealth, but took basically a vow of poverty or moved into a monastery. All right? Now, not everyone did that, but plenty of them did because they understood that to be that way. They're saying there's no premium to be found in poverty here, but again, how do they know that? How do, how do they know to be poor in spirit? Now, I would argue it says spirit, so it's a spiritual poverty. So maybe you can make an argument there. Um, there are some argue that in, um, well, I won't get into, I won't get into that, uh, that textual argument. But let's see if we can finish this. Or, well, we're not going to finish this. See if we can at least complete this point. All right. There's no premium to be found in poverty here. No, these are the poor in spirit. That is, that is blessed are the ones who realize their total abject poverty. Stop right there. Please note. Remember, this is not a rule. This is not a rule. And then immediately they says, blessed are the ones who requirement, who realize their total abject poverty, spiritually speaking, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to be blessed, then you have to come to an understanding of your abject spiritual poverty. All right, we'll stop right there. Now, they're going to go on. There's a lot more here that we could get into. Um, and maybe we'll come, maybe we'll return to this at some point. Maybe we will not. But what I want to see here is this. And we'll wrap it up this way. We opened up a little devotional booklet, did we not? And instantaneous, almost, almost immediately, what did the, Bible, the little devotional do? Not only did they interpret, they told you how to read it. This is about being, not doing. And what did they base that off of? Be attitudes, not do attitudes. And even that, you're like, wait a minute, the word be attitudes is not in the text. That was placed there in the Latin Vulgate and then ultimately became more pr pr predominant in, what, 1580, 1590, whatever, of the, great, uh, the great Bible. So immediately, that, just, that should just give you like a big warning sign. Whenever I pick up a Christian book, you've got to catch a little phrase like that. Like you'll just blow right past it, but it's now planted a seed that the next time you read the Beatitudes, you're like, these are the Beatitudes, not the do attitudes. This is not telling me how to do something. This is telling me how to be something. Okay? But is it telling me how to be something as a rule? But that, that already gets there. And so immediately they tell us, wait a minute, they try to draw a correlation, right? G, uh, both books, uh, this book led to the idea that we have to kind of read this, you know, they drew a parallel between the Ten Commandments, right? Hey, the Ten Commandments, this is different. They wanted to contrast. Ten Commandments are rules. These aren't rules, according to them. So immediately I was like, well, wait a minute, let's pick up a study Bible. They tried to draw a parallel too. And they drew a parallel because they both went up in a mountain. <laughs> and they tried to claim that Jesus is the new Moses and we are the new Israel and these are our commandments. Well, I, well they say they're not commandments. They, they, I, I don't know. And then they try to say we have to read it as a backdrop. And we have to read it as a backdrop. And this backdrop is confirmed supposedly because it says the meek shall inherit the earth, which they claim is a reference to Israel coming out of Egypt. What is going on? What's happening to me? I don't know. Like, like already right now, you're kind of like, uh, 
oh, Christianity is so confusing. Okay, so then we put all of that aside. Then we go back to this book, and then this book comes along and says, hey, guys, these aren't rules, man. These aren't rules. Okay, the Ten Commandments are rules. Okay, these aren't rules. The Ten Commandments tell you how to live. These, these are just telling you about your attitude. But are they, are they a rule for your attitude? Can you have rules for attitudes? Yeah, you can. Right? Yeah, you, in fact, some would argue the Ten Commandments, especially as interpreted in the New Testament, they also refer to your attitudes, right? You can covet with your action or you can covet it with your heart. You can hate or murder with action or with your Adult, right? So, so even that. So, but there. But so, so to, to to try to get the commandments as just see right there is already misleading about the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments go beyond just action, right? I mean, Jesus makes it clear. So, like, and then to get around that these aren't rules, I don't know who, I don't know where you learn to read, but you need to go back to school because the obvious question is, does this tell me how to be blessed? And everyone would say. Can I be blessed apart from this? You can't say that you can. Because they're the words of Jesus. <laughs> okay. I would think Jesus knows how to be blessed, right? So therefore, what I would have to say, that these are part of what's required to be blessed. You may not say it's the beginning and the end, but it's definitely a part of the middle. <laughs> Correct? Because I've got rules on how to be blessed going all the way back to where? The Old Testament. And I got rules about how to be blessed going all the way to where? The book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. Well, what's required? That's a rule! Okay, that's right. If I want to be blessed, that's another thing that's required, right? Blessed is the man who doesn't do this. Blessed is the man who do this. Blessed. Now, does this blessing goes beyond, does it focus maybe primarily on attitude? Let's say it does. If the Ten Commandments first focus on action, it does include attitude, or Jesus is adding a new interpretation to it, or Jesus is making sure Israel realized you didn't interpret it right in the first place because you just focused on external action, not realizing you're still guilty even if you don't commit the external action. Right? So if the Ten Commandments focus on action first, then attitude, then the Beatitudes, we could argue, focus on action first, but what must flow from that, uh, or flow, uh, they focus on attitude, but what must flow from the attitude? The action that is consistent with the attitude. And let's, we'll read them really quick. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, the, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I want to be able to obtain mercy. I, I, that's a pretty good, that's more than a guideline. That, that would be a rule. All right. All right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I don't know about you. I would prefer to see God. Because if I'm not seeing God, that means I'm going to be seeing something else. Okay. Is this a, a suggestion? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile and persecute you, and shall say, uh, men are of evil against you falsely for my sake. Now there is a, is a comforting blessing, hey, when these bad things happen to you, but the implication is they should happen to you, because the Bible says anyone who seeks to live godly will face persecution in this life. Rejoice! And be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. All right? There's a lot there to, to figure out, but I just want to show you how just a, a little devotional guide can start taking you down a path, and you've got to stop and ask some tough questions. And when you start asking some tough questions, you're like, again, are there some points there that sound really good? Being... Proceeds doing. Hey, man, preach that all day. That's good. I got no problem with that. Give me some verses to speak of being before doing. 
All right, if you want to say the Beatitudes, do that. Demonstrate from the text that they do that. Don't rely on the word that doesn't even come from the text, the title Beatitudes, which was not there to the Latin Vulgate. Does that make sense? All right, so something to consider. Now, th that we didn't get into actually being able to interpret the Beatitudes because there's not even agreement on how to interpret them. Or the entire Sermon on the Mount. Well, in a sense, they were trying to interpret them, right? And around about saying, but I'm saying the entire Sermon on the Mount. Many disagree on the Sermon on the Mount. Some say the Sermon on the Mount is saying, if you are a believer, this is how you will live. The only problem is, who lives according to the Sermon on the Mount in a regular, consistent basis? So then you're like, well, this is how you should live, should or must. Some argue that it's all God, it's all law. And it demonstrates that we cannot meet this requirement. Therefore, we need the gospel. Like, there's not even agreement on how to interpret the Sermon on the Mount. Which, again, is just frustrating um, in Christianity. But it goes to show that you, have, you can't just rely on sources. Because if you pick up any source, what are they going to do? They're going to be get, telling you how to interpret the book based off what? Their interpretation. So you're not interpreting it. They are interpreting it. Therefore, you didn't do Bible study. They did Bible study. Okay, right? Do I? Well, it, it, it sounds, it, it's, it's, how put it this way, it's a little misleading. It's a little misleading. That, that's the best we can say, right? Now, I'll, I, we didn't finish everything they have to say, so to be fair, maybe it, it clar clarifies it a little bit better, but it starts off in a very troubling way, especially when you make a point off something that's not even in the text, but off a heading that came. And that doesn't even tell you where the heading came from or give you any of that information. So, all right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, it's your word, it's not ours. little exercise like this is not so much about proving what's in these books are, is right or wrong. The point of these exercises is to prove that if we care about your word, we have to learn to study it for ourselves. We have to learn to think for ourselves. We have to learn how to read and be careful. And we have to learn not to fall for, it sounds positive, it sounds wonderful, so it must be right. We have to learn to look at a text and go, wait, what is actually being said here? And be willing to accept what it is, whether we like it or not. And I pray, Lord, that we would develop better skills of reading, better skills of interpreting, and sadly, better skills of detecting when Christian books are misleading us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,